So if you've ever been to the tourist town of Frankenmuth, Michigan, then you've probably visited or at least driven past Bronner's. Bronner's boasts itself as the world's largest Christmas store. The building that houses Bronner's is 320,000 square feet, significantly larger than the average Walmart. 320,000 square feet of Christmas, 365 days a year. I was at Bronner's 15 or 20 years ago. We went there because my grandmother, when she was alive, loved Christmas and wanted to spend some time shopping at Bronner's. And when you walk into the store, it it really is rather magical. It is, if you love Christmas, it is sparkly and beautiful and, and lit and it's enchanting. But once you've been in Bronner's for a couple of hours... Bronner's goes from being enchanting to a bit overwhelming. I think my experience at Bronner's is the experience that I have this time of year every year. Christmas is enchanting for me. I I, I do love it. Um, I'm even ahead of schedule right now with things, which feels good. I got my Christmas lights up. That week it was warm, and they all work, and I put them up high enough that the dog didn't eat them this year. It's been been good. Yay me. I won. Go. But then there's also this this sense of of being overwhelmed. There's still a whole bunch of stuff needs to be done. Um, Services to be planned, gifts to be bought, things to be accomplished before I skid into Christmas Day boarding an airplane bound for Fort Myers, Florida. This weekend begins the season of Advent, the countdown to Christmas. So over the next 22 days, many of you will probably get another Advent calendar, and you'll open little doors, counting down the day to Christmas and eating that stale, nasty chocolate that's in every Advent calendar I've ever known. But maybe more importantly... This Advent season, you would take time to open up the Gospels and read the story of the birth of Christ, the reason for our season. Now, the story of Jesus' birth is only found in three of the four Gospels, Matthew, Luke, and John. For whatever reason, Mark uh, begins with Jesus' ministry as an adult, not his birth, And Matthew, Mark, and and Luke form what theologians call the synoptic gospels or gospels that are in harmony with each other because of how closely they represent one another. But John, John uh, goes in a bit of a different direction. See, Matthew and Luke uh, write for us in painstaking detail what happened at Jesus' birth. They write of Mary encountering an angel who was told that she was pregnant with the Son of God. We read of the trip to Bethlehem and there being no room for they, so they are regulated to the, to the stable. Jesus is put in a manger and the angels and the shepherds and all those things. But John, John doesn't include any of that. Because what John does for us, John explains to us what all of that means. Who is Jesus? 
What does Christmas mean for us and what have we made it and, and him to be? And so as we, as we approach John's gospel today, what John's going to show us is that, that Jesus was not only the personification of God and the full representation of who he is, but Jesus also is God. But before we approach the text of, of John in the gospels, I, I think we have to consider some, some cultural assumptions that we place upon the Bible when we read it. Because reading the Bible responsibly does require us to acknowledge and understand that the Bible was written in a time and in a place. And when we read it, we read it with a cultural lens, bringing to it cultural assumptions, particularly a 21st century Western cultural assumption. Now, there are some things in in the Western world that we value. Things like individualism. We say things like, you do you, and you got to forge your own path, and you know, you're an American, you have rights, and you need to be able to express yourself and fulfill yourself, and as Westerners, we have a very clear sense of right and wrong. But the Bible was written in an Eastern context, and the Eastern context is a bit different than the Western because the values are different. Singing in in an Eastern context, it's not the individual that's important, but it's the the community. A collectivist mindset is what's important in the East. And so preserving the family and the community is everyone's goal, even if it comes at the expense of the individual. There are even several Eastern languages that do not have a word for privacy because privacy is not important. What matters is the collective community. Your family matters. Not only your immediate family, but your extended family. And your extended family is involved in some of the most important decisions of your life. Which is why in the East, arranged marriages were so popular. Because the thinking was, why should we, as a collective family, allow a young person to make the most important decision of their life, or at least one of the most important decisions of their life, on their own. We should all be involved. Now, I I suggested this Eastern ideal to my daughter, and it was met with some resistance, so we've decided to stick with the Western tradition when it comes to marriage. But in Mary and Joseph's day, arranged marriages would have been a reality. And when we read of Mary and Joseph traveling to Bethlehem for the census, uh, the scripture doesn't necessarily say they went alone. It very well could be that they traveled with, with, with their community. And when we turn the pages of the Bible and find those long lists of genealogies that so many of us skip over because of the names that are so difficult to pronounce. They're there for a reason. They're there because where you come from and the family you're a part of matters. And where a Western context really is interested in right and wrong, an Eastern context is more interested in honor and shame. So we live in a, in a world in which we, we judge things by right and wrong, but in, in an Eastern context, it's all about honor and shame what you do to bring honor to your name and your family, what you do to bring shame to your name and family. So when, when Mary was found to be pregnant, seemingly out of wedlock, it wasn't so much that she was pregnant out of wedlock that, that caused people to get excited. It was that she brought shame to herself and to her family by this, this act. So not only are there, there, there are cultural 
lenses that we bring to scripture, there are also cultural mores, those, those things that we accept in culture without question. And there are things in our Western world that we accept, and there are things in the Eastern world that we would find odd and, and vice versa. So let me just give you a couple of examples just to make it relevant. So I spent some time uh, in India with a ministry that we work with, and I, I go there to teach at a Bible college and at a pastor's conference. Well, the first time I, I was in India, I noticed something that struck me as peculiar. Grown men in India have no problem walking together, holding hands as friends. I mean, there's no, there's no sexual thing attached to it. It's just, we're friends, so we're going to walk down the street holding hands. Now, I don't really like to be touched, generally speaking. And so I, I hold hands with my wife and maybe my daughter and like, like that's it. Like I, that's, that's all I can do. Well, imagine my surprise when I'm teaching in Chennai, India and I'm on the campus of this Bible college and a pastor wants to talk to me, walks up to me and holds my hand and doesn't let go as we walk. And he really has a firm grip on it. And I knew he meant nothing. I mean, it, it was just their culture, but I was very uncomfortable because it was a clash of, of cultural mores. I'll give you another one. Just so here's another one. So I was I was at a conference in Oxford, India, uh, Oxford, England, years ago, like ten years ago, and the conference was on the life of C.S. Lewis, the author, uh, *Mere Christianity*, *The Lion, Witch, and the Wardrobe*. And while I was there, I heard a presentation by an author named Alistair McGrath, who wrote a book called *C.S. Lewis: A Life*. And he was a great presenter, and I wanted to read the book. It was a fa- I loved to read. And so while I was there, I bought the book. And had him sign it because he was there. And when I brought it home, I discovered that the same book was also published in the United States. But the book that was published in the United States had a different cover, which was interesting because when you publish a book, you usually don't publish two different covers because that's, that's expensive. But the reason it was published with a different cover was because of a cultural moray. So on, on the right, on my right, uh, where you see C.S. Lewis sitting with his leg crossed and smiling, that's the British version that I purchased. But if you were to purchase this book in our country, in America, you would get the book on the left, the one with his full face. And the reason that you would get the book on the left is because the book on the right has a seemingly offensive cultural moray, at least to evangelical Christianity, because what you'll notice is that C.S. Lewis is holding a cigarette in his hand. And publishers thought American evangelical Christians would never buy a book with C.S. Lewis holding a cigarette, but those Brits, who cares, man, they just smoke it up, no big deal. We'll just use that one for Britain and this one for... It's a cultural moray, right? So we have cultural context, cultural mores, but there's also historical and, and geographical context that we bring to the Bible. If we can, you, you good? We okay? We're going to get, we're going to get to John. We're, we're ahead there, right? So ge- geography is important in understanding what those that heard it for the first time would be experiencing. So let me, let me give you another, another example because it's, it's very easy to misread the Bible when we don't understand both the historical and geographical context of which it was written. So I'm going to give you an example from the book of Revelation, which I believe, personally, is the most misread book of the whole Bible. That's a different sermon. Revelation chapter 3, verses 14 through 17, the passage many of you probably know. Uh, this is the, the passage in which God is speaking to the seven churches. To the angel of the church of Laodicea write, these are the words of the Amen. 
the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. You are neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were one or the other. But because you're lukewarm, neither hot nor cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Now, every sermon I've ever heard in this passage goes something like this. You need to be on fire for Jesus. You need to be hot for Jesus. And if you're not hot for Jesus, God is going to spit you out of his mouth. But those that heard this passage, those living in Laodicea would have had some geography in mind. So Laodicea, located in Israel, was a city that had no source of water, right? They had no drinking water. There was a city to the north called Heropolis, and Heropolis was known for its hot springs. Have you ever sat in a hot spring? I I lived in Colorado for a while. There's hot springs there. It is, hot springs are so soothing to the muscles. Just is a fantastic experience. To the south of Laodicea is the city of Colossae. And Colossae was known because it had cold springs. So because Laodicea had no water source, water had to be brought in. And the way that Romans brought water in was through aqueducts, right? Aqueducts. So by the time water came from either Heropolis to the north or from Colossae to the south, the water was lukewarm. It was no longer hot nor cold. And so what the passage seems to be saying is that because you're neither hot nor cold, you're neither soothing like hot water or refreshing like cold water, I'm going to spit you out of my mouth. Because remember, it doesn't say if you're cold, you're going to get spit out. Cold doesn't mean, doesn't mean like you're, you're not a Christian. It just means you're not useful. At least that's what it seems the passage to be saying. So the people that heard this for the first time would have had that geographical reality into their mind. So we have this cultural, geographical, and historical assumptions that we bring and read through. And when Jesus was born himself, all of Jewish Palestine was ruled by the Roman Empire and their puppet king, Herod the Great. To which I ask, what kind of narcissist Names himself the great. I mean, mean, can you imagine? Think about a person that would do that. I mean, what if I decided, like when I came out on the weekend to speak, and you saw my name up on the screen, because we always put the names of the people speaking up. Instead of saying, Mike Belanti, lead pastor, what if it just said, Mike the great? (laughs) You'd probably get up, what kind of church is this? You'd be out here, what kind of narcissist is running this church? But no, Herod considered himself great. But unfortunately, Herod the Great really wasn't that great. He was actually horrible and cruel, not only to those he ruled, but to his own family. And if anybody got in his way, including members of his own family, he simply had them, had them killed. Now, Jewish Palestine was not all that important to the Roman Empire because of what it could produce. But it was important because of where it was located. Because it was located between two of their most valuable assets, Syria and Egypt. And so Palestine needed to stay peaceful for the sake of travel between Egypt and Syria. And so Rome said to the Jews in Palestine, we just need you to keep the peace. Rome had this phrase in Greek, it was, it went like this, keep the Pax Romana, or the peace of Rome, that was important. And so the way they kept the peace of Rome was by heavy taxation, and if anyone in Palestine got in the way, they just killed them. And that was the end of it, and that was how the peace of Rome was kept. I mean, Herod, Herod was so narcissistic that when he found out a new king 
was born. He had all the babies in that area under the age of two murdered just in case someone might try to take his power. And so it's into that world that Jesus was born. John writes, in the beginning was the word and the word was with God and the word was God. He was with God in the beginning. That phrase in the beginning has echoes of Genesis chapter one. In the beginning, God the create God created the heavens and the earth. I mean, when we, when we think about the movements of the Bible, we, we typically have kind of four ideals in our head. There's the creation and the fall of humanity. That's one big movement of the Bible. Then there's the birth of Christ, the Messiah, for which we celebrate Advent. That's a big movement of the Bible. Then there's the the crucifixion, the death, and resurrection of Christ. That's Easter. That's another movement of the Bible. And the final movement we think of is the second coming of Christ, or the return of the Messiah. But when John writes, in the beginning was the word, he is, he is talking about the beginning of the beginning and the after of the after. Well, what he's essentially saying is that in the beginning, the word has been existent through all of time in history. So before all that was, was the word. It's, it, essentially, John is introducing us to, to Jesus' origin story. Like, I love a good origin story, right? I, I do. Any Marvel fans out there? Marvel movies? My favorite's Guardians of the Galaxy, and if you've seen the most recent one, it's, it's an origin story, right? And so what John is saying, here, here is the origin story of Jesus. He always was. He always was. Before he was incarnated on earth as Christ, he existed as the Logos, the Word. The word, word in the Greek language is the word logos. Before the embodiment of God in Christ was the word, the logos. The word logos would have been recognized by both Jews and Greeks because the word logos was a representation of the active power that creates and sustains all things. And so John says, in the beginning was, was the logos, was the word, and the word was with God. Not meaning proximity, but relationship. In the beginning, the, the, the Logos was in relationship with God and the word, the Logos, was God, meaning the same. And so now John is inviting us into the mystery of the Trinity. I mean, in the Western world, we struggle with, with the Trinity because it's hard. Like, have you ever tried to explain the Trinity to somebody? It's very difficult, really, when, when you think about it. Because we think of things with a Western mindset, but those... In the Eastern world, they don't struggle with the Trinity at all because mystery is okay. It's okay that there are some things that cannot be fully explained. And John tells us that the word, the Logos, becomes flesh, is born, walks among us, and shows us how to live. So when you consider the words of the Logos, am I aligning my faith my life and my behavior with the words of God, the words of Logos. I mean, I mean, hear the, hear the words of the Logos. Matthew chapter 5, the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus' first and most prolific sermon. You're blessed. The word blessed means you're, you're going to flourish. You're, you're flourishing. You're blessed if you're poor in spirit. When you mourn, you're actually blessed. When you hunger and thirst for righteousness, oh, you're blessed. When you're merciful, pure in heart, when you choose to be a peacemaker, you're blessed. 
Oh, and when you're persecuted, you're actually blessed. Jesus goes on to say, you've heard it said long ago, you shall not murder. We'd all say murder is wrong. And anyone who murders is subject to judgment. But I tell you, anyone who's angry with a brother or sister is subject to judgment. You ever been angry at somebody? Those are sharp words from the word. You've heard it said, you shall not commit adultery, but I tell you that anyone who even looks lustfully has already committed adultery in their heart. We're all in trouble. You've heard it said, eye for an eye and tooth for a tooth, but I tell you, do not resist an evil person, and if anyone slaps you on the right cheek, turn to them the other cheek also. Oh, that really goes against all of our ideology, doesn't it? Turn the other cheek. What do you mean? If someone hits me, I'm going to hit back. No, not according to the logos. And if someone wants to sue you and take your shirt, hand over your coat as well. You've heard it said, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. But I tell you, love your enemy. Which enemy? All of them. Love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Matthew chapter 6, verse 2, when you give to the needy, not not if you give to the needy, but but when you give to the needy. Matthew chapter 6, verse 25, don't worry about your life. Any worriers in here, because I'm a worrier. Don't worry about your life. Do not judge or you too will be judged. Now here's the hard part. For in the same way you judge others, you'll be judged. You'll be judged with the same measure that you use. It will be measured to you. And why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own eye? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when there's a plank in your own eye? Matthew chapter 7, verse 13. Enter through the narrow gate, for wide is the gate, and broad is the road that leads to destruction, and many enter through it. But small is the gate, and narrow is the road that leads to life, and only a few find it. Matthew chapter 7, verse 21. Not everyone who says to me, Lord, Lord, will enter into the kingdom of heaven, but only the one who does the will of my Father who is in heaven. Many will say to me on that day, Lord, Lord, did we not prophesy in your name and drive out demons in your name and perform miracles? And then I'll tell them plainly, I never knew you. Away from me. Matthew chapter 9, verse 12. It's not the healthy who need a doctor, but the sick. Go and learn what this means. I desire mercy, not sacrifice. For I have not come to call the righteous, but sinners. Come to me, all you who are weary and heavy burdened, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Thus says the Logos, the Word of God. I was reading this week a book with some research on it, on the the Christian church, and all the research agrees that the, that the American Christian church is in decline. It's been so for a while, but most recently it's, the decline has con, gone, gone a little faster. And there's been a lot of theories as to why, so this group decided to, to research it. Why is the American church experiencing some decline? 
and they asked a bunch of people why. And the answers that you would expect to get, we didn't, we didn't hear. Uh, I expected to hear like, oh, the American church is too judgmental or, you know, we're always against this and that. But that's not the reasons given. The reason that, number one reason was given why people are walking away from the church is that the Christian church doesn't act like it believes what it actually says it believes. In the beginning was the word, the logos. And through him, verse three, all things were made. Without him, nothing was made that has been made. So John, John here is not introducing us to a baby in a manger, but to the cosmic Christ who is the creative power responsible for everything around us. I mean, think about how creative God is. When you walk outside, I mean, should we say, wow, God is God is creative. And when we think about our world, should Christians not be at the forefront of creation care? Not in some political way, but because, because of who made it. In my basement, I have several boxes of horrible artwork. Horrible. And I've never gotten rid of it. You want to know why? Because my kids made it when they were three, four, five years old. So it would never sell on eBay, but I keep it because of who made it. I care for it because of who, who made it. We get to exist on the masterpiece of God. In the same creator, John says, in him, verse four, was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness and the darkness has not overcome it. In him was life. That word life, it means life source. It's the Greek word zoe. It's a, it's a female noun. And it means having the capacity for producing, maintaining happiness, exuberance, energy, health, and vitality. So God, the creator, the bringer of life, creates them, male and female. The full representation of the Godhead is, is found in this expression that comes together. And he has the ability to sustain all of it. And what sustains is his light. Have you ever been afraid of the dark? I grew up afraid of the dark. When I was five or six years old, I I had a younger brother. I have a younger brother. He's a year younger than me. And we lived in this tri-level house and all the bedrooms are on the, the top level. And so each morning we get up early, early, early. Well, it's still dark out for my parents. We get up and my brother and I would get up and we would walk to the edge of the stairs. We wanted to go watch cartoons. We walked to the edge of the stairs and we'd sit on the stairs and then we would negotiate who was going to go turn on the lights because you never know what's not, there could be anything down there. You just never know. And so I was the oldest. So I typically won't get down there and turn on those lights, you big baby. Get that going. <laughs> See, light is... Not simply the opposite of darkness. Darkness is nothing more than the absence of light. And this light that John talks about brings life. It's a, it's a source of life. I mean, think about light as a literal source of light. The, the sun, which is our source of light. If it was too close, we'd all burn up. And if it was too far away, we'd all freeze. I mean, think of the mathematical precision 
of how close the sun is in relation to the earth that there's life as God intended it. I breathe oxygen produced by plants who use sunlight as energy. In the light is life and that same light also exposes darkness. It illuminates what is. I think we can all agree there's a lot of dark things in our world. There's a lot of things that we would call evil. And it is so easy, I think, as a human being to get worked up and flustered about the evil in our world. And there are some evils that need to be addressed. But lest we not forget that John reminds us that there is, there is a darkness that is overcome by the light. And he goes on to say, and that light cannot, will not, will never be overcome by the darkness. Even the darkest of dark cannot overcome the light of the word. Of the word. See, in this case, light and dark are understood ethically. And it would seem so much of our world has dark desires. We deceive and abuse to get what we want. We lie so we don't look bad. We judge and we gossip and we hoard rather than share. And it seems as though that the sins of our world seem to grow best in the dark, much like a fungus. But when the light illuminates, oh, things become new. In the very beginning, Adam and Eve, as they lived in the garden, committed that first sin with the piece of fruit, and then they realized they were naked, so they hid. And God was in the garden and said, Adam, where are you? And he said, I hid because I, I was naked. And I just wanted, to, how did you think you could hide from God behind like a bush? <laughs> the all-knowing God. <laughs> it is, it, it's, there's some parts of the Bible that make me laugh. I mean, do you really think you could hide from God? I hid because I was naked and we've been trying to hide ever since. But the good news of Advent is this, and if you hear anything today, hear this. God never seems to grow weary of trying to reach us. Oh, God never seems weary of trying to reach us. He, he reaches us through, through creation. And when that didn't do the work, he took on the form of a human body, of a human. And came to be amongst us and one of us so that we could have light. And now, and now he says, that same light is actually in you as a follower of Christ. Matthew chapter 5, verse 14. You, 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 you are the light of the world. But maybe be reminded, as the light of the world, intensity matters. When we think about light, intensity does matter. I mean, have you ever gotten a really bad sunburn? If you've gotten really bad sunburn, you know intensity matters. Because I, I burn. My, my, I'm half Irish, half Italian. And my, my one brother, he seemed to get all the Sicilian, and so he just, he turns dark. Like, I step out in the sun, I'm red. I call it the curse of the Irish. I mean, I just burn instantly. And I remember one time I was in Florida, I burned my feet so bad I couldn't put shoes on for three days. It hurt so bad. Oh, intensity, intensity matters. And so when we think about reaching our world as, as we're light in our world, maybe we're trying to reach our family or our friends or reaching into culture and we wonder why nobody's listening. We're wondering why people are, are put off by us, wondering why no one re- will kind of return our phone calls. And to that I ask, maybe it's because you're just giving them a sunburn because you're so intense. 
Maybe there's some adjustments that need to maybe be because intensity matters. When I was in college, I was a resident assistant. And the college that I went to, it was all, it was, everyone that went to my college was preparing to go into ministry. Which was interesting because when you, when you went into the dorms, particularly at night, you're like, wow, this is the future ministers of America. Because things could get wild once in a while. And my job as a resident assistant was to keep the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. And so I tried to do that, but I, I had some residents, they would just do stuff to each other. Some of my residents, they, they would do this thing, they, they called, they played this prank, they called it the train. And this, this is essentially what they would do. So every room had two, two residents in it. And these four or five guys would get one of the residents to open the door in the middle of the night while their roommate was sleeping, dead sleep. And they would go into the room and they would have with them several items. They would have a big, like, army, army gunny sack filled with pillows. They had a whistle that when you blew it, sounded exactly like a train. And a dive light, you know, those circle dive lights that are real intense. And they would come into the room and they would surround the bed of this sleeping individual. And they would stand at the bed and they would all yell at the top of their lungs, train! They'd blow the whistle, a train whistle, and when the person sat up, they'd shine this circular dive light in their face, which ironically, when you're woken up in the middle of the night, resembles the headlight of a train, they would take that sack of pillows, whack them over the head, then all run out of the room before anyone could even know what happened. <laughs> Creative, but caused a lot of problems. We say we want to be the light of the world. We want to awaken a world that is asleep. We want to awaken a world that is asleep to the word of God. But is our strategy much like the train? That happened when I was in college. Kind of a shock and awe. Because we see, when I read the words of Jesus, the words of Jesus seem to be a bit more, a bit more kind. A bit more grace-filled. So this week, I wonder as we spend time in John's gospel, maybe, maybe I want to invite you all to just spend some time this week reading John chapter 1 and maybe asking ourselves the question, this Advent, how can I, as his follower, tr- follower, truly embody the Christ that I serve? How can I truly be light in my world? So now, God, as we enter into this Advent season, would you fill us with a sense of expectation The light of the world is coming. Oh, he came in the most unexpected and vulnerable of ways as a newborn baby. In the most humble of circumstances, in a place geographically that didn't really seem to matter. Much like the Israelites long-awaited a Messiah, would you open our hearts this advent to the coming king. And even when things seem cold and dark, may we bask in the warmth of your life-giving light. And as a church, may we radiate that same light into our world. Much like our physical sun radiating enough intensity 
to bring life, but not enough to scorch the earth. And so I ask you that you would forgive me of all my own contradictions, my hypocrisy, my lack of love, the ways that I have not lived a life that is in alignment with the Logos, the Word. This Advent, O God, we welcome the Christ child into our hearts anew. Amen.